good to be together. Let me pray for us. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Whom would Jesus cancel? I've heard that posed as a gotcha question, with the assumed response being, nobody. After all, wasn't Jesus a friend to sinners? Isn't he the one who spoke up on behalf of the woman caught in adultery or uh, when he, to protect her from being executed? Jesus wouldn't cancel anybody. But then some on the other side speak up and say, yeah, but did you forget about Jesus publicly naming Herod as a fox, calling the Pharisees a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs? Or when he canceled that fig tree when he found it was fruitless, withered it on the spot? Right? So again, whom would Jesus cancel? And it is an earnest question, at least as I hope we'll consider it this morning. In the context of cancel culture, or accountability culture as others prefer to call it, some of us feel genuinely confused about who God wants us to be canceling. Because we can maybe see the good in the movement, that abusers and truly evil people that would have gotten away with heinous crimes 50 years ago are now called to account. That's great. But on the other hand, we're maybe concerned by some potentially unforeseen consequences of this shift. Like, is it possible that we're canceling some people who shouldn't be canceled? And that's plenty to wrestle with in the context of the great big world, but then there's this separate but related issue of well, what does this look like when we zoom in and apply it in the context of a local church? For example, a month or two back I preached the story of Phineas who lived in a time in which God's people all around him were flaunting God's law, spitting in God's face. And we saw that in the midst of that, Phineas gets filled with such godly jealousy that he takes a spear, you remember this? And he publicly executes two people who were engaged in a particularly egregious offense against God. And Phineas, he's praised for that repeatedly in Scripture. So we said that day, hey, let's be a church family where we lock arms together and, like Phineas, but without the physical violence, zealously make war against the sin in our lives that threatens to destroy us. But one of you texted in a comment that day, and I apologize, I didn't see it until a couple weeks ago. Uh, you said, if we're going to be so aggressively fighting sin here at North Sub, how could I ever work up the courage to confess sin to others in the church family? Right? Wouldn't I be just opening myself up to attack? I worry that I'll be here, be trying to be vulnerable, trying to be known, and in comes a wannabe Phineas in my small group, spear in hand, ready to put me to death. Who feels safe in an environment like that? And that's such an important question, right? It necessitates that as we talk about whom we should cancel in the world in general, if we're going to use that language, we also take time to think carefully about how that works out in the context of the church. So we got a lot of work to do today. But in our scripture text, Jesus helps us navigate some of these questions. Would you turn with me to Matthew 13? Matthew 13. Uh, there are some, perhaps, some Phineas wannabes among the crowd Jesus is talking to here. The type who are eager to see the bad guys eliminated sooner rather than later. And if so, the parable Jesus tells brings a caution. It's Matthew 13. If you've been with us, you know we're spending our summer in Jesus' parables. Parables are stories that use something familiar to help us understand something less familiar. So we've seen parables so far this summer about types of soil and about workers getting paid and about a father who had two sons, all of which are designed to show us different aspects of the nature of God's kingdom. 
we get today's parable from the pen of Matthew, who's one of Jesus' 12 closest followers. And in Matthew's telling of the life of Jesus, he places today's parable right after the parable of the soils. That's the first one we looked at this summer, three weeks ago. Actually, Matthew has this as a whole sequence of parables, one after another after another. And the one we'll focus on today about weeds and wheat, I think you'll find that it has particular obvious relevance for our cancel happy time. So it's only 20 verses we're reading today, but Matthew covers a lot of ground. We'll see in this section, actually three parables, uh, and then in Jesus' explanation of why he teaches in parables, Matthew's explanation of that, and then he circles back to explain the first parable. Our attention today is really just focused on this first and fifth uh, of these sections. That's where we spend most of our time. So first, the parable itself, verses 24 to 30. A quick note before we read, as we consider this parable, don't assume that every object in the story carries the same symbolic meaning that it does in other stories Jesus tells. Does that make sense? So metaphors can be used in diverse ways in Scripture. In one place, the lion is Jesus, and then over here in this other book, the lion is Satan. So when we start reading about sowers and seeds, as much as other parables might come to mind, it's best to try to come at this fresh, right, with no assumptions about what's meant. So let's read together verses 24 30, follow along as I read this. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in this field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and pull them up, the servants asked him. No, he said. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them into bundles to burn them. But collect the wheat in my barn. So this man sows good seed. But while his employees sleep, his field falls victim to bioterrorism. Potential crop killer here, livelihood ruiner, sowing weeds all throughout the wheat. Would anybody actually do that? Well, college football fans know about these trees on campus at Auburn University when an Alabama fan poisoned them in 2010 at Tumors Corner. This famous section, they, they roll uh, toilet paper over these trees after every win. An Alabama fan put poison in the soil and it killed the trees, did jail time for it, right? And back in the day, this wasn't unheard of actually to do something like what's talked about in this text. Roman law actually included a specific prohibition against sowing darnel, which is the weed referred to in this parable, in your neighbor's wheat field as a way of getting revenge. So apparently, this was a thing people did. Using Here's darnel versus wheat. Look very similar uh, until they mature and the heads are different. In verse 28, the owner of the field knows that it was the work of an enemy. And so his employees are like, let's pull up the darnel. But the farmer's like, no, not the best idea. Uh, the roots are tangled together at this point, right? To pull one will risk bringing the other with it. The best path forward is to let them all grow, and then we can collect and burn the weeds at harvest time. And there are a lot of weeds, enough to bundle them uh, for burning. There would have been perceived to be a real danger that this many weeds could choke out a whole crop, yet he says, hey, let's leave them until the end. I don't want to lose any of the good wheat during our attempts at removal. See? So that's the parable. 
We're actually about to get two more parables, three for the price of one this morning, and it matters that Matthew puts them here in the sequence, so we're going to read them, even though we're going to keep our focus on the weeds and the wheat. Uh, Parable 2, here it is, verses 31 to 32. Then he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. What's the point? The point here can't be, look at how huge the kingdom's going to be. Jesus had much better options than a mustard plant if he wanted to illustrate sheer size, right? A mustard plant can get big, but it's like a big shrub. More than that, it seems like Jesus is making a point about how the kingdom grows from something small to something much bigger. He's saying something like the kingdom will grow more slowly, more organically than the instantaneous boom you're expecting. From all we know from this time, even outside the Bible, Jewish expectations were such that they would have expected a teacher like Jesus to relate the kingdom to maybe a thunderbolt, right? Something immediate, yet instead he's relating the kingdom to garden plants, right? Shocking. But Jesus has begun building something that at this time is inauspicious. It hasn't even registered as a blip on the radar of Caesar far off in his palace in Rome. Yet, eventually, what Jesus has started is going to grow into a force that will effectively bring down the Roman Empire. Like a mustard plant slowly maturing and enlarging, so with the Jesus movement, future Caesars will be in full damage control mode because Christians with their generosity and compassion and hospitality will win over the populace. Flocks of birds will perch in the trees. And if Jesus is thinking of Ezekiel 17 when he says that, he's referring to Gentiles joining the movement to the point where we are today. With now, where are we, 2.6 billion Christians in the world and growing significantly each year, projected to continue to grow in the next decades? Jesus called it in advance. He told us, hey, it's not just coincidence that this small thing is going to become this big thing. It's part of the point that I chose to start all this from a humble mustard seed. To understand the kingdom, in other words, one has to expect and embrace quiet, small beginnings. Got to move along, so on to the next. Uh, If the mustard seed was teaching us about the kingdom's expansion, this next one's teaching us about the kingdom's permeation. Parable three. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. Once again, what Jesus is depicting isn't the instantaneous flipping everything upside down that people were looking forward to. They were scanning the horizon for Jesus to muster up the Wagner group to march on the capital and overwhelm the regime with massive force or whatever the first century equivalent of that would have been. Instead, Jesus sets out As one man, walking the countryside for three years with 12 disciples from unimpressive pedigrees who share what they found with others, who share it with others, who share it with others until 2023 when it's increasingly hard to find a state or province or even a city on this earth without a collection of Christians worshiping King Jesus together on a Sunday morning like this one. And for 2,000 years, these Jesus followers, these kingdom people, have been impacting everything they touch with their civic engagement, their business ethics, their neighbor relationships, their generosity and hospitality, all the while getting worked into the fabric of community after community. 
with the result centuries later that entire cultures have unknowingly been thoroughly shaped by Christian values, right? Like leaven working its way through dough such that you can't rip off a single piece of that dough anywhere without that piece of dough in your hand inevitably having been made to expand by the leaven so that so Christians have had a dramatic effect on human cultures. For example, do you realize that the main critiques against Christianity in our culture today are themselves based on principles that only came from Christianity in the first place? You Christians treat some people as though they're less than. Wait, where'd you get the idea that everybody's supposed to be equal? The world didn't think that until Christianity came along. You Christians lack compassion toward the oppressed and those on the margins of society. Where did the idea come from that people should be compassionate toward the oppressed and marginalized? Name a culture that was embodying that before Christianity came along and rewrote the script. See? Christianity has so leavened Western culture over the centuries that even the lumps of dough pulled out by opponents of Christianity have been permeated by Christian teaching and practice. Just like Jesus said would happen. So that's three parables, back to back to back, all dealing with growth. But think on this with me. If Jesus apparently wanted to communicate, the kingdom's going to grow slowly from something small to something big, permeating throughout the world, why not just say it like that, like I just said it? Why use parables? Three weeks ago, we considered this from Mark's gospel, chapter 4. Now here's Matthew's editorial comment on why Jesus taught with parables. Matthew is definitely in line with what Mark records, but Matthew's emphasis is on the other side of the coin. So remember what we said uh, the first week of June from Mark 4. We saw that the parables are intended to achieve a dual effect. Remember this? Two effects. Over here, they unlock the secrets of the kingdom for those who want to hear. But over here, for others that don't want to hear Jesus, their unwillingness to hear actually gets hardened into an inability to hear as a direct result of being exposed to these parables. Right? So it does different things to different hearers. Now, here Matthew wants to emphasize the first of those two purposes, the unveiling purpose. Right? So here's verses 34 and 35. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables, and he did not tell them anything without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. That last part of verse 35 is a quote from Psalm 78. I wish we had time to do a deep dive into Psalm 78. Here's a quick summary. You you can see a few verses of Psalm 78 up here. About a thousand years before Jesus, this is, a worship leader named Asaph basically says, hey, I'm now going to bring into the light some of the mysteries that have lived in the darkness. But if you notice how he words it here, he says, but I'm not going to tell you any new things. I'm just going to tell you the things our ancestors have already passed down for us, the things we've already heard and known. But Asaph weaves these stories together from Israel's history throughout Psalm 78 and connects them to each other in a way that is new for Israel, for his hearers and readers, those singing the song, and is illuminating. And it's in that sense that he understands himself to be shedding light and speaking mysteries or declaring wise sayings or parables in this Psalm 78. Uh, Shedding light on truths previously shrouded in darkness and mystery. So Matthew quotes this. And says, oh yeah, Jesus was fulfilling Asaph when he taught in parables. And I'm, I wish you could appreciate, this is wild, right, that Matthew uses this. 
Uh, here, here's why. It, it's so easy to gloss over, yet so very instructive, I think, about how we're supposed to read Scripture. Think about what this means. When Matthew reads Psalm 78, after three years being shaped by Jesus teaching Matthew how to read the Old Testament, Matthew apparently reads Asaph saying, hey, I'm going to bring some mysteries into the light. And his first thought is, oh, Asaph is really talking about Jesus. And this isn't an anomaly to find Jesus or his followers reading the Bible in this way. Time and time again, Jesus and his disciples who were shaped by his teaching open up the Old Testament. And their default reading mode is to look for, okay, where's Jesus foreshadowed here? And that goes for the big highlight moments from the Old Testament and the obscure passages. It goes for the A-list figures like Moses and David and for the supporting cast like Asaph. Right? Oh, Asaph said he was taking what was shrouded in mystery and bringing it out into the open. I see now, Jesus is the true and better Asaph, Matthew thinks to himself. And that method of reading the Old Testament is part of the reason why, as we're taking Jesus seriously in the series, when he says the parables are declaring things long kept secret, each week of the series we flip back to the Old Testament at some point and ask, well, what particular long-contained secrets are now being brought into the open in this particular parable of Jesus that we're looking at today? And what we've been finding is consistent with the language of Psalm 78 here, that Jesus' teachings about the kingdom aren't, aren't usually like something that none of his hearers would have ever heard before. It's stuff they've heard and known, that their ancestors have passed down to him. It's more, wow, this was always here in the Old Testament, but because we had never connected the dots in this way before, our expectations were off. Now Jesus has connected the dots appropriately so that the once fuzzy picture now is becoming clear in front of us. See what I mean? And that, of course, is one half of what the parables are intended to do, to unlock these mysteries. So Jesus makes these parables a staple of his teaching. He teaches in parables all the time. Verse 34 doesn't mean he exclusively teaches in parables. Matthew's gospel has already recorded the Sermon on the Mount. A few chapters after this, we'll get all this apocalyptic teaching from Jesus. What Matthew's saying is it's just that it was Jesus' regular practice that every time he taught, he included some parables with his teaching. And something cool about this particular parable that we're focused on today and are about to revisit is that it's only one of two parables in the Gospels that we get a full-blown explanation for. So no guessing needed to figure out how we're supposed to take it. Uh, and that's where we spend the rest of our time here in the explanation of this parable, the weeds and the wheat. Ready? Verse 36. Take a look with me. Then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples approached him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Now notice, this is an observation from D.A. Carson. What separates the disciples from the crowds isn't that the disciples understood so much better than the crowds. They're just as confused as the rest of the crowds. Right? Now what differentiates the disciples isn't their understanding but their persistence. See? And isn't that a word for us? I think that's got to be key for us in this sermon series. Like, don't be discouraged in this series when you don't get it at first in these parables. God's not looking for the people who are quickest to get it. He's looking for those who keep at it. Hey, explain it to me. Show me what it means, right? And so in this parable, some symbolic items are identified. Like, we're told what the seed represents. Other items aren't identified. Like, what's the sleeping all about? So while we read Jesus' explanation, we're going to keep one eye back on verses 24 to 28. We're not going to make any effort to identify the items from 24 to 28 not identified by Jesus in 37 to 43. Does that make sense? Like, the sort of uncontrolled imagination that looks for an analogy in every item in the story is not how parables are supposed to work. 
Jesus tells us which parts to pay attention to, so those are the ones we'll pay attention to, right? So here's his explanation, verse 37 and following. He replied, the one who sows the seed, the good seed, is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. So the sower is Jesus in this parable. Specifically him, the son of man, which is an interesting assuming of a role that we'd normally think would be assigned to God himself. And so Jesus, the son of man, is portraying himself in this parable, going around and sowing. Sowing God's word, right? No, what's he sowing? In this parable, he's sowing people. Children of the kingdom, meaning those whose lives are marked by their family resemblance to the kingdom. And the weeds, then, we learn, are also people, namely children of the evil one. If children of the kingdom bear a family resemblance to the kingdom, children of the evil one bear a family resemblance to their father, the evil one. Right? Periodic reminder here that Jesus taught that the devil is very real. Here the devil is depicted as actively sowing evil people among the children of the kingdom, apparently to infiltrate the field and thwart the otherwise healthy growth of God's children in that field, which makes us, maybe, say, wait, the devil has power to do that? Surely when God sees Satan doing that, he'll take immediate action to eliminate those evil people from the field before real harm is done to the crop. But no, right? The harvest isn't until the end of the age. When God will send his angels to gather up and carry everyone to their final destiny. It's a bad deal at that time for those who have been exposed as weeds. Fire awaits them, right? Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned into the fire, so it will be. At the end of the age, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they'll gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. No minced words. On the flip side, it's a really good deal. For those who have proven to be whole grain, they'll shine, right? 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. What's tricky, of course, is determining which is which. What's weeds? What's wheat? How do we tell the difference, right? In the end, it'll be obvious, like Darnell and wheat, and you can see the heads. In the earlier stages, it's less clear, and there's possible root entanglement involved, according to verse 29, right? Meaning that even if you could determine conclusively that a particular stalk was a weed, the pulling of the weed might take with it a stalk of the good wheat. Now, a critical phrase here that I've underappreciated in my past casual readings of this parable is in verse 38. This is crucial for understanding the parable. Jesus tells us the field is what? The world. Not the field is the church. And that distinction has massive implications, I think, for how we understand the church and the world. Many excellent biblical scholars and commentators over the centuries, from Augustine to Calvin, it's a long list, have commented on this parable by saying basically, oh, oh well, the church is going to be composed of some of God's children and some of Satan's. There's not much we can do about it. The church will always be mixed. And for sure, just because a group of people attend church on a Sunday morning doesn't mean all of them are truly wheat and not weeds. Of course not. But here's the question. Is the phenomenon of a mixed church what this parable is about? According to verse 38, the answer is no. 
It's not what this parable is about. Contrary to Augustine and Calvin, this is not about a mixed church. It's about a mixed world. And that clarification from Jesus should stop us, I think, from making certain arguments. For example, God forbid we're at a congregational meeting one day in the future and we're announcing the removal of someone from our member roles. A church member in good standing stands up and, and makes the argument, sure, sure, okay, he embezzled from the church and is cheating on his wife. But Jesus said, don't rip up the weeds with the wheat. Who are we to remove, remove this guy from the member roles? Our response to that should be, I think, yeah, let's not try to rip him out from this world. Let's aim for restoration. Let's show him grace and mercy. But the field in the parable is the world, not the church. Five chapters after this Matthew 13 warning not to pull up the weeds, Jesus talks in Matthew 18 about how essential it is that we remove from the church people who persist in showing themselves to be willfully out of line with his way. If the field was the church, Matthew 13 and Matthew 18 would be pretty contradictory messages, right? But it's not contradictory because the mixed field isn't the church, it's the world. See that? The main message here then about the kingdom isn't about discerning who's in and who's out, though there are implications for that, I think. The main message has to be something more like this. I just kind of captured it here. Something like this. God has no intention of eliminating the enemies of the kingdom before the end. In fact, he has assured us that they'll continue to oppose his children until the end of the age. God has no intention of eliminating the enemies of the kingdom before the end. In fact, he's assured us that they'll continue to oppose his children to the end of the age. And now we can see how this parable about the weeds and the wheat and the other two short ones that we saw are connected, right? All three are about growth, first of all, right? Mustard seed grows, the leaven works its way through the dough, the field of weed, uh, wheat grows even alongside the weeds. And I, I, I can't say it better than my study Bible summarized it. It said, this is Craig Blomberg in the NIV Zondervan Study Bible. Despite all the obstacles the kingdom faces, and without necessarily removing them, God's purposes will be accomplished throughout his creation. This is what this parable is fundamentally about. His purposes are going to be accomplished no matter what resistance is there. He might not even remove the resistance. It's still going to accomplish his purposes. Isn't that such a countercultural message today? And I mean countercultural even among Christians. I don't, I don't know what conversations in your circles are like, but to me it seems like Christians who lean more right and Christians who lean more left have both been trying to wipe out their opponents in hopes of creating a weed-free world, and by which I mean a world composed only of wheat, as they understand wheat. Right? Like over here, conservative Christians are like, what's going to happen to Christianity in America if we don't take back the White House? If we don't purge our schools of woke teachers, if we don't reinstill patriotism in the next generation, fellow Christians, rise up with me and help me pull those liberal weeds. Meanwhile, progressive Christians are like, what's going to happen to Christianity in America if we keep insisting on these embarrassingly outdated teachings on gender and sexuality? We're going to lose a generation. These kids aren't buying that message. There won't be anybody in church in 50 years if we don't adapt and grow with the times. Fellow Christians, rise up and pull those fundamentalist weeds with me. See? Meanwhile, this parable is like, hey, your first problem was 
when both of you started out by asking what's going to happen to Christianity. What's going to happen to Christianity is that it's going to continue to grow despite any and all obstacles. Jesus, the sower and manager of the field, isn't worried about obstacles. He can ensure a harvest without even removing the obstacles. And in fact, he's the one saying, no, 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 don't remove that hindrance yet in many cases. See what I'm saying? So, so much Christian rhetoric today on both sides amounts to the kingdom doesn't have a future if we don't rip up the weeds. Meanwhile, Jesus is like, there's no amount of weeds that can threaten the kingdom's future. Doesn't mean there's not action to take. I'm not saying that. Right? But, you know, and I haven't lived that long, but I've already lived long enough to see some weeds that once looked so formidable end up shriveling while the children of the kingdom continue to grow. Haven't you? Right? Some of you remember the emergent church movement telling us we need to abandon black and white biblical authority and get more comfortable in the gray. Nobody's making that argument anymore. Now everybody inside and outside the church seems to realize the importance of being black and white on the most important things. Or another example, I think a few weeks ago when several countries in Europe who are years further down the road from us on LGBTQ experiments quietly announced they're ending all gender transition surgeries for kids, for minors. Remember not too long ago when that weed used to look so terrifying of gender transition surgeries for minors, right? Like it would grow forever. Now, after countless brave detransitioners have exposed that racket for the abuse that it was, that weed is shriveling up. See what I mean? God has wired the world in such a way that the weeds can't ultimately succeed. Left to their own devices, every other would-be hope, every other would-be kingdom will eventually fail on its own terms. It's just a matter of time. There will always be weeds, but none of them will ever win. Because the world was designed only to hold up and flourish under the reign of King Jesus. Amen? So let me clarify something here. First, certainly when looking within the church, but even when we're looking at the world outside the church, there is a time and place to say, hey, that's rotten, that's evil. I'm not saying there isn't a time for that, right? Like like John the Baptist calling out Herod for his immoral marriage. There is a time for that. It's just, I think this parable changes the stakes of those conversations. It shows the outcomes of those efforts to be less life and death for Christianity, right? That's why, like, when I get targeted emails saying, hey, pastor, there's never been an election more important than this one, right? The future of the church is being decided on the battleground of our public schools, so will you take your place among the churches, partnering with Bald Eagle Freedom Group USA? (laughs) What I... I never respond, but when I, what I feel and think is, well, to clarify, like, are you asking me to devote our church to pulling up a weed that you've identified out there in the world? Let's say you've identified the weed correctly as a weed, and it really is. What makes you so confident that Jesus doesn't want that weed to grow up alongside us to the end? There are people who should be doing that work. We're not going to devote our church to that work. The human community will contain a mix of good and evil people. Children of the kingdom and children of the devil, always, no matter what we do. Right now, well, and King Jesus is going to judge from his throne one day, and then his kingdom will cover the whole universe with those who reject him having been thrown out. It'll be all wheat. Right now, though, he's allowing people to choose to reject him and allowing them even to attempt to work against the church because he knows they're never going to thwart his ultimate purposes. And in some cases, they don't realize that he knows they're going to unwittingly serve his ultimate purposes. 
while I'm far down the road here, I'm going to throw in one more nugget. Besides everything else that we've noted in this parable, I just have to add that I've grown personally less confident over the years in my ability to tell weeds from weeds. Anybody else? It's like that show, is it real or is it cake? Who's seen it? <laughs> right? Those video clips have me shook, right? I can't tell which is which. I'm almost always wrong. But I used to be so confident in my ability to tell weeds from wheat, spiritually speaking. Right? I'll tell, I've told this story before. I'll tell it 50 more times. If you would have told 17-year-old me, pick any one person in your whole high school and make the call, wheat or wheat. Make it easy on yourself. Pick somebody on one of the far extremes, right? Pick the person you're most sure about. I would have picked Nick in a heartbeat, right, immediately, and I would have been wrong. Because 10 years after graduation, Nick's tapping me on the shoulder in the Georgia Dome while we're both there leading youth group kids from our churches. I was sure he was a weed. There was nobody that was more hostile to Christianity than Nick, right? But he wasn't, right? And in case any of us need one more reason to leave the weeds alone, besides what we I've already talked about in this passage, that's one more reason, I think. We pull up too much wheat while we're going after the weeds. So let's get practical here, right? So though the main point of this parable is more macro, I think, about the resilient growth of the kingdom despite ongoing opposition, there is the practical exhortation here not to go out ripping weeds in the field. How do we apply that? Maybe a couple examples will help illustrate how I think this parable can help us avoid some mistakes by showing us that the stakes, in one sense anyway, are actually lower than what we thought, okay? I think about the girl or boy who is showing some tendencies to dress or behave in ways that aren't stereotypically as masculine or feminine, whatever those things mean, as we might expect, right? If that person, made in God's image, dearly loved by him, feels to you like we detected, must uproot, no, no. Google detransitioners, listen to a few stories, right? Do you know how many people are now reflecting back on their experiences 10 years ago with gender dysphoria and saying, I just needed somebody to love me enough to give me room to struggle and wrestle without trying to panic and fix me, but also love me enough to maintain their commitment to the truth without affirming whatever lies they thought would make me feel good. That's what I needed 10 years ago. See, if we're worried that the boy who doesn't like ultimate fighting or the girl who would rather wear pants than skirts is a threat to God's kingdom, let's take a deep breath. What needs to be said and how is a real question, but make no mistake about the long-term trajectory of all this, right? The kingdom is going to be fine. Or another one, your spouse or grown child or friend who's gravitating toward a political perspective that you find troubling. Maybe you find it very troubling. If that person, made in God's image and dearly loved by him, feels to you like weed detected, must uproot, no. Not every political opinion is created equal. There is a time and place to try to be persuasive regarding political matters. What needs to be said and how, that is a real question, and it's difficult. But again, Make no mistake about the long-term trajectory of all this. No matter what happens in the 2024 election, the kingdom is going to be fine. Amen? Here's our big idea. As we await Christ's final judgment, let's expect that his kingdom will continue to experience opposition from children and the devil. 
That opposition will not ultimately succeed. Praise God for his sovereignty over human history. Yet, let's expect his kingdom will continue to experience opposition from the children of the devil. In light of that, whom does Jesus want to cancel? Which weeds does Jesus want us to pull up? And more to the point of this parable, why hasn't Jesus ensured the pulling up of those weeds already? We've seen here that he's got his own timing for when he's going to separate his children from the children of the evil one. And it's likely that he wants a lot of us to be a lot slower than we have been to make that call about which is which. Yes, we are commanded to keep fellow Christians accountable. No, we must not sweep sin under the rug or cover up evil, period. But there's a difference between lovingly challenging each other on sin and writing someone off as beyond hope, a weed that needs to be pulled. We Christians haven't shown ourselves to be great at making that distinction, especially in our online skirmishes, right? We disagree with another Christian on a tier four minor issue, and very quickly the rhetoric escalates to, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Stay away from this heretical false teacher. And I've got a confession to make in this regard. During the COVID craziness of 2020, 21, here I am. I wake up and find myself getting called all these names by people I loved and spent a lot of time with. I'm so hurt because I'm like, how could you think these things about me? But in my hurt, I didn't sufficiently appreciate some valid points being made by people who are critical of me. Instead of having a charitable attitude toward folks who had found fault in me, in, heart, in my heart, I can see in hindsight that I wrote some of them off as beyond hope. And I regret that. And so we repent. We apologize. We go a different way. And we thank God that he's not as quick to the sickle as we are in our flesh. Right? Where we're ready to chop down, he's often saying, hold up, wait. And that's incredible news because many of us have looked like weeds at some point. No? Those who know us best still probably have some days of looking at us side-eyed like, is he... Really whole grain? Not so sure. But practically speaking, maybe here's what we do, right? I'm going to go back to that question one of you thoughtfully texted in a few weeks back. You said, why would I confess my sin if those I'm confessing to are in a mindset of making war against my sin? That's terrifying. The first thing I'd say is, well, it might not make sense to confess sin unless there's at least some part of you that wants to defeat it. I'm not sure how helpful confession is in itself, Right? If we confess but remain fully determined to continue in the sin, we're no better off for having confessed. But if there's even a little sliver of you that even wants to want to want to want to have victory over this sin, that's where you name it. In your life group, in your growth group, guys, ladies, I got to confess, I love this sin. But deep down, a tiny but important part of me knows I'll be better off when the sin is gone. Will you guys pray for me? And then those around you come around you with grace and love, not chopping you down and throwing you into the fire, right? More like, hey, you're not alone, brother. You're not alone, sister. Isn't it great that Jesus died for all our junk and that he arose again to give us victory over it forever? We love you and are for you. We want to honor your bravery for naming that, and we, your faith family, want to remind you that Jesus knew you were going to get into that sin, yet he died for you anyway. Anybody out there 
who would hear you confess that and respond by taking out the sickle to cut you down, Jesus stands between them and you saying no. So brother, sister, can we pray now that his spirit will bring you victory in this area of your life? What if it looks something like that? Now, now we're forging a community in which sin isn't safe. We don't want it to be. But in which we ourselves have never been safer. Because war has been declared on the sin that threatens us, yet our brothers and sisters who are joining us in that declaration of war are patient with us. They don't assume motives. They don't write us off as hopelessly lost because we've fallen into sin. Maybe even when we've fallen into sin repeatedly. They don't panic because they know God's kingdom is going to continue growing until the end, despite any threats it could ever face. Let's pray. God, we want to have that trust. We want that to be our mindset. We want our hearts to be filled with the peace that comes with that deep, deep assurance that in the end, your kingdom is going to grow and thrive and win. No weeds are ever going to be successful against it. We don't need to panic when we see the weeds sprout up in the field because we know that in the end, nothing's going to get in the way of your ultimate purposes. And so, God, as we uh, do wrestle with sin, as we do struggle with enemies in this world, we pray that you would help us to have your heart towards those enemies. We pray that in the context of this local church, as we come alongside each other in fighting against sin, that we would minister your grace and love toward each other and that we would appropriately work toward uh, letting your grace saturate every square inch of this church family. In Jesus' name.